Welcome back to the Piper Carter podcast. You are listening to Piper Carter, and we are live on YouTube as well as uh, plenty of other streaming channels. So go ahead and hit that like button, subscribe, and share this video. You definitely want to share this video in particular because this is one of our most important conversations that we're having now and that we're probably ever going to have and that we're going to continue having until it's solved. So I'm not going to waste anyone's time. I'm going to go right ahead and bring our guest into the space so that we can do some deep learning and he can do some deep sharing. And so um, I want to welcome you, Kamal Franklin. Uh, there, well, there's probably people who know you from different spaces, but in this moment, uh, community movement builders. And so uh, can you uh, tell us why you're here today, what you're here to talk about, and then we can work backwards into like okay. what community movement builders is. And welcome. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it um, that you guys are devoting some time to this issue. Uh, an issue I came to talk about is the issue of Cop City. And so folks ask, you know, so what is it? What is Cop City? What does that mean? And Cop City is basically a militarized training facility that is being proposed here in Atlanta. Uh, it is a facility that uh, is being proposed to be built in a forest area in a working class uh, black community. And the reason there's a lot of us in terms of organizers and activists uh, and community members who've been opposed to the building of Cop City is because the 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 the, the length and the breadth of the of this is something that should be scary to all of us. Um, Cop City as an idea came out after the 2020 uprisings um, is when it was proposed here in Atlanta. And as folks know, the uprisings happened after George Floyd was killed, Breonna Taylor here in Atlanta, Rashad Brooks. Um, and during that time period, uh, uh, there, there were like mass movements and demonstrations across the country and internationally even that were saying, we need to do something around police violence. And of course the language that was being used at the time was we need to abolish the police. We need to defund the police. In other words, we need to find uh, uh, public safety alternatives uh, or alternatives for public safety that don't involve uh, putting armed guards or armed people in on every corner in black communities. Um, and the response to that by the city was to instead of taking that seriously, and I think this happened all across the country, is that they sort of waited their time until they could change the narrative. But even more importantly, the response here in Atlanta was to propose the largest militarized training center in the country. And why is that important? Because we see this training center as something that's going to be uh, built to stop movements and stop organizing and to continue the over-policing of the Black community. Now, why do we say that? Because on this training site, there's going to be spaces for a Black Hawk helicopter landing pad. There's going to be over a dozen firing ranges. They're going to be mock cities to train in urban warfare and in crowd control. There's going to be spaces for uh, explosive devices um, to be detonated. So this training and this training center will be military grade. Forty-three percent of the police officers that are going to be trained here are going to be outside of Georgia. Uh, which means it's going to be a training center for all across the country for police to come in. In addition to that, the Georgia police already do training with the Israeli police department. And so that training is going to be extended to all these other policing outfits who are going to come here and train. And so the same, excuse me, the same tactics and strategies that are used against Palestinians are going to be imported here. 
and the same tactics and strategies used against the black community are going to be exported to Palestine and used against Palestinians. And so we see this as a militarized response to organizing and activists uh, trying to stop police violence. And so instead of trying to stop it, we see the city here is doubling down and trying to do more uh, to bring harm to communities and again, to stop future movements against police violence. And thank you for you know that great overview. And um, I wanna dig into some of the specifics. You named so much. Oh man, I had to take a breath off that. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times um, in community, I'll say in my own experience, whether it's knocking doors or just being in community in general, um, I met with folks who really, um, I wanna say, um, who I believe do not understand the gravity of um, why it's important to interrupt uh, something like a cop city because the rhetoric is um, around safety. And as we know, because of many of the reasons that we're all inundated with, because of all the divestment from our communities, um, we experience all the things, right? All the violence and all the things that are missing from our, that, that can help our communities be healthy and whole. And so what we're met with um, by, you know, government and, you know, uh, even people in our own communities is, but we need police and we need to increase, you know, the police and the police need, you know, all of this because the people are out of control and because the violence is out of control. And I want to ask if you could help us to deconstruct and like just interrupt that um, and, and help us understand like why that's problematic. Mm-hmm. Well, at first I'll do it through a historical lens, right? And then we'll come up to today. So before 1865, for the most part, Africans were enslaved, right? And so that meant that African people were on plantations uh, as slaves uh, for masters producing products and goods um, uh, at that particular time, right? Um, after 1865, when the Emancipation Proclamation and the end of the Civil War, uh, for the Africans were considered quote unquote free. After that time, they started to erect black codes. Um, and black codes were basically laws that criminalized uh, activities that they targeted black folks for. So vagrancy, um, being in certain neighborhoods, um, uh, uh, being um, um, uh, loitering, those kind of things. And those tar- that targeting was around criminalizing newly freed African enslaved people and providing an excuse for arrest, re-arresting folks and putting them back in a plantation situation. So from 1865 to 1878, the prison population of Black people went from virtually zero to over 30% across the country in different states, right? And so the idea of criminalizing black communities has a historic element to it, or, it's, uh, or the idea of what crime is, is historically linked to criminalizing black communities in particular. And so since that time, we've gotten wave after wave after wave of propaganda from media outlets, whether you know back in the day, newspapers, TV stations, 
and the propaganda is always around how criminal and violent our communities are. And so therefore they need to be policed. And so that has brought us to the modern era where we have what, you know, the prison industrial complex, where we have basically the overwhelming majority of people in prison are men, 90% of that 6% of the US population is black males. But yet black males, again, depending on what state you are, make up anywhere on the low end to 20 to 30 percent to the higher end, 40 to 50 percent of those imprisoned. So I first I caution people around even the rhetoric around what is crime. Secondly, I always say to people, when you look at the historic drop in crime over the last 20 to 30 years, what we considered crime, you can't say that it has anything to do with policing or policing strategy. There is no survey that's ever been conducted, any study that's ever been conducted that has linked the type of policing or any kind of policing to a reduction in crime because there were historic drops in crime all across the country and everyone was doing, every city was practicing different types of policing. So the idea that you can link the fact that someone files a report after a so-called criminal act takes place that they, they somehow have something to do with a decrease in crime stats or making a community safer, safer is something that's completely false and unproven. And so a lot of times we assume that the police are the only things or the only mechanism that's going to make our community safe. And we reject that notion as community movement builders and I think as most organizers and activists do. Because we understand that the historic role of police, you know, again, being brought out of slave patrols, particularly in the South, is to treat black people as criminals and to criminalize the community. And as you stated in your original uh, formation of the question, um, communities that are underserved, under-resourced, um, communities that don't have control of the institutions in those, in, in those neighborhoods. And so therefore, those communities are what classically would be called oppressed communities communities that are victims to a larger American system. And so we have to deconstruct even the idea of what, not only what crime is, but what keeps our community safe. Thank you for that. And, um, you know, there's so much to talk about about the Stop Cop City. Um, there's a couple of angles I want to go, but before I go to the other angles, can can you dig into the economic angle and how, um, because you named before how um, this project is pretty much an expansion of an already existing project that's, you know, been here and let's just call it an upgrade, if you will, to the existing, you know, militarized policing project. And so um, I was on a teaching before and you were naming um the, the various entities that are involved. And so, um, you know, it's not just like a localized economic impact, it's a global economic impact. And I wanted to um, ask if you could give us um, how this benefits, um, well, when I say benefit, I mean, <laughs> benefits, uh, uh, you know, not communities, but um, I'll say institutions, how this benefits institutions locally, but then also how it benefits like, the larger world project of, of, of imperialism and world domination. Mm -hmm. So, you, you know, earlier I stated that Cop City came out of the 2020 uprisings. So the idea of Cop City actually was something um, that the Atlanta Police Foundation was working on prior to those uprisings, prior to 2020. But it was rushed forward after the uprisings, after the mass protests all over the country and all over the world. 
And again, the reason that was done was because Atlanta in particular felt unprepared to handle mass protests. And when I say unprepared, that means unprepared to suppress those protests and to control those protests and so that they don't have a larger impact on the economic stability of the city. And when we say stability, that means the ability of corporations to sell products, right? The ability for people to go to work every day and to work for most of these corporations. And so they don't like it when folks are out in the street protesting against the police murder of black people, the over-policing of black communities, because that, dis excuse me, that disrupts commerce. So the very people who, the very institutions who at one point, however, were saying, we support black lives are those same institutions that have donated to make Cop City happen. And so the Cop City framework, you know, it's controlled by the Atlanta Police Foundation, right? The training center will be controlled by the Atlanta Police Foundation, which we should note is a private institution, a private nonprofit. So this private nonprofit is going to control the training for the police in the city. And again, the training for police will be coming over uh, from around the country and even internationally. And so this private foundation is going around collecting money from corporations, everyone from Delta to Waffle House to UPS, um, uh, um, uh, so many different corporations, Coca-Cola at one point, uh, Hewlett Packard, so many corporations, major corporations that have headquarters here, but these are international corporations because they want stability. And they've put in uh, right now $60 million to make this project happen. The city of Atlanta has put in another $30 million to make this project happen. And it has basically donated the land to build the project, which is in a forest that is adjacent to a working class black community. So Atlanta has basically said, here's a lease for like a hundred years at $5 or $20 a year, something along that range. This, this is your land to cut down hundred acres, although they're, they're leasing 300 acres and there's nothing in the lease that prevents them from further cutting down more acres later on. But here you can cut down 90 acres to build this monstrosity of a militarized training center and capital, corporate capital is paying for it. So basically we have private industry, which is paying for the sort of the public policing arm to protect private property, right? To keep commerce flowing. So this is how this works into the international project of, 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 of Western dominance around the world. It's the same way the United States has military bases all around the world so that it can make sure that Western capital remains dominant, that Western corporations remain dominant in the world. It's the same thing here. They wanna make sure that populations here in the United States um, are docile and do not react to their own oppression, but accept things as they are. And they felt unprepared, particularly after the 2020 uprisings, to handle the fact that people were responding to police terror and police violence. And so this project is, made, is meant to give them another way to have what we would call a national policing strategy and tactic around, again, how do you stop uprisings? How do you stop movement building around police violence and other things? And how do you continue to use policing to over-police the uh, uh, communities of color, particularly black communities in the United States. Yeah, man, I wish this podcast could be five hours um, so we could do a proper uh, <laughs> a proper uh, teaching on the whole thing. But um, I want to get to some some other aspects of this project. Right. So also to um, 
you know, in Detroit, we um, have a something very similar uh, happening, a grayling. Um, and so, you know, you spoke about how this uh, can be replicated, you know, in different spaces and how other spaces are replicating it. Um, you know, and you spoke about the the global militarization, right, of um, of all of our people. And, you know, that connection to the local police forces and how they're learning from one another. So, like you said, um, the same ways in which Palestinians are being um, oppressed, right, by um, is, is Israeli militarized police force, Mossad and the like. Those specific techniques are being cross-trained over here. And then the tactics that were learned from, you know, throughout history, right, the, right here in these United States are also being shared, right, across. And so um, can you also speak a bit about um, this, this connection in terms of, you know, when we, you talked a little bit about it, but when we talk about safety, right, and when we talk about, um, you, you know, you brilliantly, you know, laid out about um, interrupting the ideas about uh, when we say violence, like what we mean about violence. Could you just kind of, I want to bring in a little bit more, uh, highlight a little bit more, this idea about violence. And when you're talking about who is violent, and when we're describing the violence and who's doing the violence and and this connection to this project um, and also to the communities. And you did speak about it a bit more, but I, for me, it's this aspect of the violence and the narrative around violence and who's doing the violence that's really, really important for us to mm -hmm. really tease out a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things on that, a couple of quick notes, right? No entity is more violent in the world than the United States government um, in terms of wars, in terms of its military apparatus, in terms of its weapon grades. Uh, there's, you know, when you look over the last 60 or 70 years of world history, uh, there's no country that is responsible for more death and destruction around the world. If you just add up uh, the numbers of people killed in various wars, the United States by far is the most violent country in the world. And that's always been recognized by anybody who's done any study whatsoever around the use of military force. Here in, in the United States, the police are, are a violent institution. We have more people in prisons than any other country in the world. Um, and in fact, some I think some stats, if you add up like the, 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 the next three or four countries or five or six countries, the United States still has more people in prison. You, you know, the, the China, which is, you know, has a, over a billion people. India has over a billion people. Um, it doesn't even come close to the amount of people who are arrested and jailed and imprisoned here in the United States. So we have to understand, I think I think your audience already does know this, is that this is a violent country since its inception and based on violence. Um, and we also know, you know, and, you know, not to skirt any issue, of course, there's violence in our individual communities, right? When we have communities that are under-resourced, when we have communities that are poor, when we have communities where people are fighting each other for whatever little resources that they can get, of course, folks turn on each other and cause uh, levels of violence. But the way to solve those issues of violence in a community has never been to put more police in those neighborhoods or in our neighborhoods. Because by doing that, we only increase arrest, 
But again, we never decrease the amount of violence in those communities, not by the mechanism of policing. Um, the safest communities in the United States are not the communities that are most over-policed or have the most police in them. They are the communities that have the most resources at their disposal, the communities that have good schools, the communities that have fair housing um, and, and affordable housing, the communities in which people have some control over what type of stores and development happen in their neighborhoods and communities. The people who even gather together to provide security for their own communities through paying HOAs and other things like that. So there are, are examples of what safety looks like even in front of us. But because our communities are not only not invested, you know, they're divested in, they're just considered to be they're just the ghettos that we've grown up in. I grew up in Albany Projects in Brooklyn. So, you know, these communities are 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 communities which are last on anyone's priority list. Um, and then they are just looked upon and portrayed as violent places to live. And so therefore the only solution is to bring in police. Well, that's not the solution at all. All that does is continue to criminalize communities and again, bring excess labor out of those communities and put them in prisons. And those prisons are usually located in white communities uh, in places like New York, upstate white communities. And this is true all over the country where for the most part, they provide jobs as prison guards for white working class folks, right? So these, these communities are used as fodder to provide employment for other people. The answer is that we have to figure out how to control our communities and our institutions um, around, around the neighborhoods that we live in, that we have to learn how to, to bring resources to those neighborhoods in a collective fashion. Like this is not about how some individual is gonna get rich and give back but we have to collectively organize to take control of our neighborhoods so that we can control the institutions um, and anything that has any, anything to say around our community, including any aspect of public safety. These downtown politicians have no interest in saving uh, black and brown communities. Their interest in is working for the corporations and in working for developers. That's what they care about. And until we figure out, we as organizers, we as everyday people, we as community folks, how to not be dependent on the, the folks downtown, the politicians, whether they're Black or white, Democrat or Republican, but the politicians who constantly lie to us about what brings public safety, when we can see for our very eyes that their acts of building things like Cop City or putting more precincts in our community do nothing to bring down crime in our neighborhoods. Yeah, thank you for that. And I want to acknowledge um, in the chat, we have um, our beloved kindred, uh, Sawatu Salamara, who um, has a couple of questions in the chat. I'm going to start with the uh, the first question. Well, I'll, I'll just name both. So the first question is, um, it's basically how do we and other uh, majority Black cities um, understand um, the phases of militarized policing and scale up our ways uh, to resist on the front end? And then the second question is, um, what was the early stages of organizing that happened in um, ATL? Um, and then uh, she just said so much love for y'all as well. Well, I think, you know, for me, the answer is always in terms of how do we fight back about this is that we really have to organize into bodies that have radical politics that look outside the arena of 
uh, you know, have the ability to look outside and say, this is what's going on. This is how capitalist economics works. This is how white supremacy works. We're never going to solve the issues of our community by relying on those tools or the institutions that they've built to save our larger selves and our larger neighborhoods and communities. We're going to figure out, have to figure out how to dig deep and create organizations that can start to solve the problems of our neighborhood, at least start to address them and create models for them, while at the same time challenging the state and its role and its acts on our community. We have to build grassroots, community-based organizations. When we look back at our history, when we look back at the 60s and the 70s, and we look at COINTELPRO, what we can look at COINTELPRO was the government plan or operation, uh, not just the FBI, but the federal government along with state and city governments to destroy militant, radical Black movements. And why did they do that? Why did they focus in on doing that? They did it because it was becoming effective, right? Because it was offering a rhetoric and a rationale that was different from what they were telling us. That they were telling us to either slow down or wait our turn. And then some of us, they were telling us that we needed to integrate into their society. Radical revolutionaries of the 60s and 70s said, wait a minute, this is the society that's oppressed us. Why would we join it? Why would we just filter ourselves into it? And in response to the knowing, understanding how how society works and the different prongs of how folks were trying to pull us in or stop us from organizing for self-determination, they went about on a strategy, they being the state governments, the federal governments, of destroying those organizations and making their ideologies obsolete, right? And they did that, and they, they did that by killing, by uh, uh, sowing dissent within those organizations, by destroying those organizations outright. And what they left standing was a voting strategy and allowing a certain black bourgeois through uh, uh, either through entertainment or sports or small amounts of capitalist development, individual capitalist development, to become the dominant way in which we begin to talk about what is good for us and good for our people. And so now we have celebrities and ball players uh, telling us what is good for our people. We have uh, uh, academics who get make millions of dollars telling us what's good for our people. And usually you can trace what's good for them to be, it's basically being calm, cool, and collected and trying to find your way or some small enterprise here. So we need to reject those nation, those notions and collectively really begin to organize people in our neighborhood. And that's through, you know, things that we do as community movement builders is that we do mutual aid uh, and we do political education. We do sustainability projects, uh, which means giving resources to people. You know, we do cop watches and security watches in our neighborhood and control in, in, in our neighborhood. Um, we do uh, organizing around the issue of gentrification and organizing around the issue of police violence. Uh, we even own property so that we can move members into neighborhoods to do more organizing in the community. So we think that we got to dig deep for that stuff. And that's how we solve or at least begin to counteract the issues. These are their historical precedents in terms of the Black Panther Party uh, or SNCC. Uh, when people look at SNCC, SNCC dug deep into Black communities in order to organize with local folks. We have to learn to do that again. Now, when we as organizers first learned about Cop City after the 2020 uprisings in 2021, it was announced as something that would be a morale boost for the police. Right? That's what the city, the Black uh, mayor of Atlanta at the time, Keisha Lance Bottoms, put out there. 
that it would be a morale boost for the police. In addition to the things that I spoke about earlier around allowing them to stop movements from growing and to continue over-policing black communities in particular. It was from that standpoint that we began to diagnose and understand what this was. And at the time, the whole city council, including the and the mayor, all were in support of building Cop City. So the black bourgeois mayor, the black bourgeois, but not exclusively black in Atlanta city council, all agreed that they wanted to build Cop City. This is the same black mayoral system. We've had 50 years of black mayors in Atlanta and black Atlanta has gone from being 60% black to now a city that's under 50% black. And you heard that right. Atlanta is no longer majority black. Uh, there's been gentrification, which has been steered by black political elites that have decreased the population of Atlanta, of black people, of poor and working class black people in particular. And so when we first started organizing, we were organizing to stop the city council to take the vote to give the least lease to the Atlanta Police Foundation. And we did standard organizing. We did rallies and demonstrations and town hall meetings and petition drives. We did call-ins. We did all the things that you're supposed to do. And on the night of the vote, the city council, they opened up the phone lines and people, everyday people got to call in and express their opinion. 70% of the people that called in said they were opposed to Cop City. But yet the city council, <coughs> excuse me, voted 12 to 4 if I'm not mistaken, to go ahead and to build Cop City. So against the, the, the larger public's desire to not have $30 million of the city's money spent on this institution that no one asked to be built, the city council decided to go ahead and build it. And the mayor at that time uh, was a new mayor, decided to go ahead, Andre Dickens, and sign the lease to build it. And the strategies began to shift and we started to do force defending some aspects of the movement, <clears throat> excuse me, started to do force defending um, and the movement continued to grow from there. <coughs> yeah. And I wanted to dig into the movement part, you know, um, because you talked about the organizing and um, or you talked about organizing in general and naming how organizing is our tool. Um, as you know, how we're going to, uh, I'm going to say, save ourselves. And um, let me see, with the time we have left, I want to dig into um, some of the organizing that you named some of the things that Community Movement Builders is doing. And um, there are some, there's a national campaign. I wanted to um, just dig into that a bit more with, you know, not leaving you like no time to talk about it. And um and how people across the country can, you know, support that campaign. And you also talked about, um, I think there's an event that's coming up in March as well. So I wanted you to kind of uh, go into, you know, the organizing the in the campaigns. Yeah. And so, yeah. And as I mentioned, at the, you know, we've been organizing on this for nearly two years. And even at the beginning of that organizing, there was police violence against our organizing. So when we did regular demonstrations, those demonstrations at the end of them, the police would arrest demonstrators. We had 19 demonstrators arrested in, in one or two different, uh, uh, or three or four different demonstrations across that time period. And at the time, their charges were resisting arrest and obstruction of governmental administration. Standard charges. We, you know, charges that we didn't, that we disagreed with, that we wanted to fight, but still standard charges. 
as they passed the lease and organizing continued and then they became forest defenders and they saw that we were not going away. They saw that the movement continued to act, continued to grow strong, continued to use different tactics, civil disobedience, direct action to stop this, this, uh, uh, this cop city from happening, that we started to get some national attention. Basically, the city developed a task force, a task force that was made up of the Atlanta Police Department, the DeKalb County Police Department, where part of Atlanta is located, uh, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the and Homeland Security. So city, state, and federal agencies formed a task force to stop the growing idea of organizing and activism to stop Cop City. And out of that idea, they decided to go forth and start thinking about using state charges of domestic terrorism against organizers and activists, particularly the forest defenders. And so in December, uh, uh, the, the police, the various police agencies did a raid in the forest and arrested approximately six people and charged those folks with domestic terrorism. In January, January 18th, they did another raid and again arrested another six or seven people and charged those folks with domestic terrorism. And in addition, they killed, murdered the activist uh, Tortugita, who was part of uh, the forest defenders, uh, and, and, and after that, uh, I think the Monday after that, there was a rally and demonstration, and then seven to seven or eight people in downtown Atlanta were also charged with domestic terrorism. And we have to be clear on this. At the time of the arrest, particularly the folks in the forest, but this is also true of the folks who were arrested downtown where a cop car was burned. At the time of the arrest, the only thing that those folks were doing in the forest were living in tree huts or being in tree huts and being in tents on the ground in the forest. The police had no indication at that time and no past indication based on videotape or anything that anyone who has been arrested was involved in any acts besides the acts of civil disobedience. And so we must be clear on that, that the state agencies, the police, uh, the policing agencies of the city, the state, and the federal government, the, the liberal to moderate black mayor, along with the right wing, white conservative, white supremacist governor of Georgia, and the moderate liberal federal government headed by Joe Biden, all combined to form this task force to go after organizers and activists who are fighting against police violence. And so those are the tactics that are happening against our movement here in, here in Atlanta to stop Cop City. But that movement has not stopped. That movement has only grown in spite of the terrorist actions against our organizers and activists in the larger community that at every time they've done something, more people have gotten down and continue to fight. And you brought up that there's going to be a week of action happening in the second week of March. Or I'm sorry, the first week of March. Included in that week of action is that we're having a national day of action on March 9th. We're asking organizers and activists and community folks that no matter where they are, to do what we were doing in 2020 and what we were doing before that uh, when Ferguson kicked off, and what we were doing before that when Trayvon Martin was killed, that we need to be back out in the streets, that we need to mobilize again against police violence. Uh, and so Atlanta is not the only hot spot as we know. There's things that happened in Memphis. There's murders that happened in California. All of this stuff is happening, but at some point our communities have de-escalated and we're trying to help support the idea that we need to get back out into the streets, 
and organize again in a way that shows that we're serious about fighting back against police violence and we're serious about trying to control our communities so that the police can't come in uninterrupted and do whatever they want to do and think they're going to get away with it. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, you know, laying out those actions and things. Also, too, um, with Community Movement Builders, you have um, a chapter in Atlanta. Um, I'm a member of the chapter here um, in Detroit. Can you, um, and you, and I think there's a third chapter? In Dallas, yes. In Dallas. And so for folks who um, are interested in supporting the work of Community Movement Builders, um, <laughs> In addition to uh, the Stop Cop City, can you name how um, also two folks can tap into that? I mean, our website is communitymovementbuilders.org, and that's the perfect place to go to. You can find out about most of the work that we do, particularly, I guess, here in Atlanta. We need to extend it further to the work of other chap chapters. Um, but there is an info at communitymovementbuilders.org uh, email uh, and a place there on the website where folks can ask how they can get involved. We welcome and support allies to get involved. Remember, Community Movement Builders is a Black organization, and, and we welcome folks who want to build chapters of Community Movement Builders in other places. We think we are at the forefront of trying to figure out how to get back into base building in our communities and neighborhoods um, and fight that way by organizing people on the ground and then getting them to challenge City Hall and then getting them to create new institutions and organizations that we run and we control. So we feel like we have a holistic uh, approach to organizing in our neighborhoods and our communities. And we feel like that is the only way in which we're going to stop these folks from terrorizing our neighborhoods and our communities. Yeah. And, um, you know, you're very committed to uh, the movement. You're very committed to um, the work that you do. And just wanted to give you a, a huge thank you. Um, we're, you know, we, we have a, like just a couple minutes left. And I just wanted to, um, you know, ask you, are there things that when you do other interviews that you uh, maybe haven't gotten a chance to talk about, you know, or things that you feel um, need to be said or need to be named? I mean, the, the biggest thing I think that I would like to say to this audience, um, because it feels like to me, a lot of this audience probably are people who are looking for ideas and solutions and ways in which we can fight in our community that, you know, we really do have to go back and dig deep and do a little bit of studying, a little bit of reading or uh, a little bit of watching even of like, what was it that happened in our community that drove us to get some progress? What were the institutions and organizations what were the, the apparatuses that were built that fought back against white supremacy, that fought back against racism, that fought back against the economic exploitation that was happening in our community? What were those institutions that were built? How did those institutions fall? How did, who destroyed those institutions? What is the, what, which ones were left standing? Which ones still do good work in our community and which ones are just, uh, let's say, placeholders to, for the Democratic Party? We have to begin to figure that stuff out and to challenge ourselves, again, to build long-term organizing campaigns, to base build in our neighborhoods and our communities. Because if we don't, we will always lose these wars and these battles. And so we have to figure out how to dig deep. Our organization is just one way to do that. If people want to start their own and we work together, that's another thing that we can always do together. But the important, important thing is that folks have to start figuring out 
that if we want these this exploitation to end, having more police in our neighborhoods is never going to help us in that. We have to build organizations and institutions, as, as others have done, to protect our communities, to, to safeguard our communities, and start bringing us some self-determination and some ownership over our lives and our larger communities. Thank you for that. And um, just wanted to remind folks to go into the description and um, the link to your website, the Stop Cop City, but also the link to the campaign that's on the Community Movement Builders site. Uh, link is there. There's also the link to the Stop Cop City um, Instagram page. And thank you for spending your time with us, you know, we know that uh, you're very busy, you know, with all of these campaigns, with all the things and um, want to send you some healing love and thank you for making the space for us. Uh, even though, you know, you're, uh, you know, not, not feeling so well today. And thanks for sharing, you know, um, about how folks can get involved because that's the biggest thing we like to do here is share how we can see ourselves having power um, in all of our situations. Cause the point is that we have power. Right. We're uh, while we're victimized, <laughs> we're not victims. Exactly. Uh, we're 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 powerful. And so thank you for sharing all of that. We appreciate you. And um, you. yeah. So, you know, everyone like, share, subscribe. Thank you for joining this conversation today. Please share, share, share this because this is really important information. And we hope we, we know that all of you will be involved in this campaign to stop Cop City because, um, yeah, this is just our mission in this moment. And um, I'd like to, uh, you know, invite more of your members to come back on and continue. Um, I don't want this to just be like one conversation. We um, also today have a rally, Stop Cop City. If you're in Detroit, come down to Spirit Plaza uh, downtown at three o'clock. That's where we'll be uh, joining the Stop Cop City campaign. And we are uh, fully on board uh, with this campaign. So you'll see more shows um, about this. Yeah. So thank you and thank you. peace, everyone. Peace. Thank you. Mm -hmm.